Well, we are going to test the uh, electronic demons today because today's message is going to go along with about a 29 or 30 slide presentation. Be off and on through here. We're going to cover some cool stuff today. Uh, last week, we began to uh, start the short series on the Bible, also known as the Instruction Manual for Living the Christian Life, the Written History of the Plan of God, the most powerful book that's ever been written, and a love letter from God to you. Now, we started off with five of the basic understandings of life as a Christian, or walking the Christian life, what a prerequisite to understanding the Bible. And I'm going to briefly go over those again, but if you'd like to crack open your word, we're going to start in Psalm 19, after I give the quick review of the five basics, so you can go ahead and open up to Psalm 19. That's about the center of your Bible. Psalm 19 will help us to move from religious experience to building a relationship with God. And then we're going to have some fun with timelines as we see some survey results as well as look at historical timelines of how the Word of God was brought about. So as we reviewed last week, we began with the first of the main, the five main things, which is to glorify God. That is the chief purpose of man. Isaiah told us, don't withhold, bring sons and daughters from afar, from all the earth, everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory. The second main thing is God's will for us, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ for you. The third, of course, is the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The fourth main thing is the great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them that I will be with them always. The fifth is the great charge. Remind them the word of God is not bound and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Do your best to present yourself as an approved worker who does not need to be ashamed but rightly handles the word of truth. Amen. Now, when we decide to be a Christian, we're not immediately equipped with all the knowledge, the tools, or the advice we need to be successful. Correct? comes a little at a time. That's why God has given us his word. Within it we find his directions on life, living, and decision-making, praying, and communicating. Each time we go back to it because we're a little better equipped, each time we find more tools, and we find the things that we need to build the relationships so that we will be successful. Knowledge is only one part, though. What God's word does is it changes us. Knowledge then turns into wisdom, and that's where we see a change in each of our lives. Amen? So here in Psalms 19, it starts out with verse 1. The heavens, are you with me there? There we go. Thank you very much. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above declares his handiwork. 
day-to-day pours out speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuits to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than any gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, even dripping honey from the comb. Moreover, by them... Is your servant warned? In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, amen. Hmm. We're told when we spend time speaking with God, hearing the word, our soul is revived. We gain warning. Our hearts get that much-needed refilling with joy that brings joy and light back into our eyes. There's no division on education. All come to the living word and drink. His words, his counsel are more precious than gold. They are sweeter than honey. The more intimate we get, the more intimacy we get out of the relationship. Webster defines intimate as to communicate delicately and indirectly marked by a warm friendship developed through a long association. Amen. But know this, intimate fellowship An intimate friendship is a choice, not an accident. Just as we purposely seek friendship with someone, it has to become a priority in your life. And we have to be willing to give something up to get it. We have to develop new habits that make friendship possible. The more we become friends, the more we gain an interest in the things of our friend. Now, the things we pick up can work both ways. We must choose whose friends we decide to be, correct? But friendship requires work, doesn't it? Man, that's the thing. You've got to choose to do it. If not, what happens? You end up finding yourself sitting in your house all the time going, man, if there's just somebody I can call and you know, go to a movie with or go shopping with or, you know, like we have one friend that, when all else fails, we like to call and get together with him because we know he hates everything. <laughs> and that's exactly what we'll do. 
We'll sit and get him turned on, and we'll just laugh and carry on. Because there's always something. He's it's some conspiracy going on somewhere. There's something that's happening. But not all friends are perfect, are they? No, they each have their own flaw. Just like you have your own flaw, right? But you have to purposely decide that relationships are important. Okay? Everyone who's in here today made a conscious decision to say this relationship is important enough to get out of bed. Okay? To choose to come here rather than go on the boat today. Can I get a witness? <laughs> you know? Now, I, I understand that September and October is coming, so, you know, everybody knows what October 6th is, right? It's my quota hunt. So, we have to make those choices, right? I will have to decide that my relationship with the deer stand that particular Sunday will be more important than you guys. <laughs> it will be a hard decision. When uh, I was younger, we would go to Keenansville. My dad's had a place there since the 60s, 1960. And, uh, me and my brother and him, and we would all go, and uh, his wife and Sandy came down, she'd go, and we'd all go, and we'd spend time fishing there at Lake Marion. That's when, you know, all you had to do is basically walk out on the water, reach a hand in, and you could grab a speck, you know. There was so many of them. But we'd fish, and then we'd cook them, and we'd, uh, you know, play penny poker, and we would just build relationships and, and build memories. Amen? But you had to choose that over something else. And we each have to do that. The grandfather was speaking about good and evil and how we both have good and evil within us. And the grandson asked, which one will grow more within me? And the grandfather said, they're like owning two dogs. The one that will grow is the one that you choose to feed the most. Which one will we feed? Whose friendship will feed the good and not the evil? So we must ask ourselves, which friend are we feeding? Are we feeding the word or the world? Which one do we allow to feed us? James 4 says, you're an adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose it is with no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You see, God is jealous for the spirit that he allows to dwell within us, which is God himself. Why should he have to put up with the world? Because he has chosen to give you grace abundantly and be filled with the spirit of God. Says he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The more time we spend with him and his word, the more we have an interest in the things that he likes. To have a loving relationship with God, we have to be willing to put in the time to do the work that that relationship requires. The question is, are we putting in that time? It would seem, if all the professing Christians 
in our country did that, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in, would we? George Barna, I'm sure you've heard of him if you've been in the Christian uh, faith for any time, uh, is highly respected as a surveyor in the Christian community. His group conducts surveys on the topics of the Christian, of the church, of things pertaining to Christian way of life, and they've been doing so for almost 30 years. In an interview prior to 2009, George was asked, over the last 20 years, would you say, what are the five most significant changes, trends, and shifts you have observed in the Christian life? George said, well, first he said, number one is the decline of Bible literacy. Clancy, that means how smart you are about the Bible. Okay, I'm just saying. Fewer and fewer people have any clue what the Scripture really teaches as opposed to what they feel it should teach. Fast forward to 2016. He did that survey that only 10% of all professing Christians have ever read the entire Bible. I'm going to give you an idea what that is. Okay, so generally we've been, we've been almost at 200 every Sunday for the last three weeks. Uh, figure 40 kids are out of here. What is that? Um, 160, 10%, 16. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Could I have you guys just stand up right over here a minute? Everybody there. Okay, you see that group? You are all the Christians in the world. There are all the Christians in the United States. That's the amount of them that read the Bible and have Bible literacy. <laughs> now you know why our government's in the shape it's in. You can sit down, guys. Thank you. That's the percentage. Scary, isn't it? So fewer and fewer people have any clue what the Bible or instruction manual from God really teaches as opposed to what it, they say it should teach. So how are we to live in victory, build character, much less defend our faith if we're clueless concerning the Word of God and His Word? We as a fellowship of believers have allowed society to distract us, lull us into complacency, and because of that our Christian freedoms and morality have been systematically being stripped away. Slide 14. On this slide it says, only one in six U.S. adults reads the Bible most days during the week. One in six. Over 181 million Americans opened the Bible in the past year. Just over one-third of U.S. adults reads the Bible once a week or more. So one-third of America is reading the Bible once a week or more. But 50% read the Bible less than twice a year, including never. Ah. Overall, one in six adults, 16%, reads the Bible most days during the week. Good news is that's up from 12% in 2020. So something has happened recently. There's really some good news in here. People are pulling their old dusty Bibles off the shelf and starting to look at them again. Mm. So that's some pretty good news. <clears throat> Slide 15. Our distractors will say, well, it's just a bunch of words written by men that's changed over time. <clears throat> One in eight indicate the Bible is just another book that contains stories and advice. 
How many people before the Holy Spirit got a hold of you believe that same thing? Right? That's, that's what you were told, right? Just, it was just stories. One in ten holds a view that the Bible is not inspired by God, but rather reveals the writer's understanding of the principles of God. Now, check this out. Ten percent of Americans take a Bible hostile stance, believing the Bible was written to control and manipulate people. It was the uh, relatives of George Bezos, I'm pretty sure. I'm just saying. Half of Americans affirm the Bible contains the keys to living, living a meaningful life. A slight majority of Americans agree that scripture, Scripture's message is particularly helpful. But 54% say the Bible contains everything a person needs to live a meaningful life. But that view has fallen significantly since last year when over two-thirds of adults, 68%, affirm the Bible as an important source of wisdom. So what is that? How weird is that? So more people are grabbing, digging the Bibles out, but less people are believing what they read. That's scary. What's the next one we have? A worldview. For the purpose of research, a biblical worldview was defined as believing that absolute moral truths exist. So check yourself on this. I'm going to give you six things. First, you have to believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. Second, God is all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules today. Third, salvation is a gift from God, and it cannot be earned. Satan is real. A Christian has a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with other people, and the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. That's what is referred to as a biblical worldview. If you do not believe those, you do not have a biblical worldview. You have a worldview worldview of whatever that happens to be. This is what it says. Researchers indicated that everyone has a worldview, but relatively few people have a biblical worldview, even among devoutly religious people. They discovered that only 9% of born-again Christians have such a perspective on life. 9%. Okay? So we had uh, 20% here of the world, right, that was reading the Bible. Now, half of those that are reading the Bible regularly actually only have a Christian worldview. So if you're all of America, that's the little percentage that's reading every day, and then half of that percentage is truly living what they read. Youch. Hmm. And then the numbers are even lower among other classifications like Protestants and uh, Catholics and uh, blah, 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 blah. You know? So it is a scary time. So I, I wanted to put that out there because we, we often ask ourselves, right? I mean, we're a pretty much committed biblical worldview church body of believers, correct? I mean, that's our majority view. So it's hard when we're all together and we read all this crazy stuff that's going on in the world or going on in our country... We think, how can that possibly be? We're supposed to be 80% of Americans are supposed to be Christians. Yeah, they are. The only problem is 5% of those are actually living the Christian life and living a biblical worldview. That's why our country is in the trouble that it's in today. <coughs> now, 
Now, I want to take a quick look at a bit of the history of the Bible so we might get a better equipped answer to answer these people that say, what is this Bible all about? Now, let me, let me start with this. When people come to me and they say, I want to go dig into finding out the history of the Bible and why these books are used and why these other books aren't and all that stuff. So that's wonderful. But don't do it until you've decided that God is real, he is the creator of the universe, and his word is truth. Because if you haven't agreed to that, I've seen a lot of people go down this trail and then walk away. So we're going to walk the trail today, amen? And we're going to give you all the facts, and you can make your own decision. So the Word of God, it has 66 books, 39 written before Christ and 27 after. Together, their, their interpretation and expression of God and godliness. They were written over a period of 1,500 years. We have two testaments. The testament meaning a witness or evidence of something, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the first five books are called the Pentateuchs, or the books of the law given to Moses. Then you have 12 books of history with real-life stories, descriptive narratives. Then you have five books of wisdom like Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. 17 books of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and so on. Then comes the New Testament, the four Gospels, or the biographies of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then one book of history, or the history of the church, that's the book of Acts, which we've been going to. Then you have 21 letters, also called epistles, and one book of prophecy, God's plan for the future, the book of Revelation. Now, let's look at the Jumbotron, and we can see a historical timeline of when these scriptures came into existence. Of course, we know that the law, the Ten Commandments, were given in about 1450 B.C. or before Christ. This is about the time that what we call the Old Testament was being written, or more accurately, beginning to be preserved on scrolls. As a matter of fact, that is where we got our word Bible from. When 20 or more papyrus sheets were glued together, they were referred to as a biblion or a book. Later, the word of God was saved by writing it on parchment or a very fine type of letter. Leather. In 2 Timothy, Paul is asking for his biblia to be brought to him. The verse reads like this. When you come back, Bring the cloak I left at Taurus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchment. Slide 18. In 650 B.C., the scrolls were beginning to be gathered together so they could be studied and kept in their original form. 400 B.C., the Old Testament began to be translated into Aramaic, and this translation is called the Aramaic Targums. Now, I might get all these things pronounced bad, but I'll look it up. In about 400 B.C., the Jewish leaders began to recognize and refer to the five books of the law as the Torah. And this is what you would study in here and read to you when you went to the temple. Slide 19. In 200 B.C., the Torah was first translated out of the Hebrew into Greek in Alexandria. Now, this was a great importance because most of the civilized world was adopting the common language, which was Greek. Let's pause here a minute. So just like now... There's a lot of countries that the language that they teach is their second language is English, correct? So at this time, it was Greek. Doesn't matter where you lived, when the Greeks began to take over the world, okay, you learned Greek. So this is an important time for the Bible, okay, to be translated into Greek. Now these pictures that you see up here on these slides are actually the historical evidence of some of the things that they have found during that time. 
These are the pieces, some pieces, some parchments of the Septuagint actually being written in Greek from that time. Now, slide 20. In about 90 AD, there were five scrolls of the law, nine scrolls of the prophets, and 11 scrolls of writings that would be officially recognized and placed together under the protection of the rabbinical council of Jamia, J-A-M-N-I-A, whatever that one is. It's the first official gathering of the Old Testament, not, the writings of, not that the writings of God were not taught, they were for over a thousand years. But now to keep the text pure as it was being translated into multiple languages, there needed to be a line in the sand, as it were. Okay, slide 21. And this was in 90 AD, and it's what we call a canonization happened in 150 AD, where these books were recognized as the first Hebrew Bible. Okay, everything making sense so far? We're seeing this timeline as these things show up. Now you may wonder, which writings did they pick? to be the Old Testament Hebrew Bible that we know today. So number one of the number one questions we get. How can we trust the authenticity of the Word of God, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament? Well, first, the men who did this had to be led by the Holy Spirit. As well, they set up requirements. The language of the original book had to be written in Hebrew. The content of the book had to be in harmony with the law. The prophecy books had to have been written between the times of Moses and Ezra. And the books had to have been written within the geographical boundaries of Palestine. The remaining writings that did not meet this criteria, that were believed to be informative or historical, became known as the Apocrypha, which can be found between the Old and New Testament in many a Catholic Bible. They were the books of First and Second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the chapters of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. When looking at this timeline, you can see a progression of how these words we read today have been kept and preserved for thousands of years. How do we know that they have been preserved? Because of the archaeological evidence. Most of us have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? You should have heard of them by some point. If you went to college, you had to hear of them. Slide 22. The Dead Sea Scrolls date from 200 B.C. to 70 A.D. and contain the entire book of Isaiah and portions of every other Old Testament book but Esther. So these scrolls that they found here, okay, it turns out they basically contain the Bible. Now that's pretty impressive. That's just one of many. Slide 23. The Genza fragments, portions of the Old Testament, are found in Hebrew and Aramaic. They're, they were discovered in 1947 in an old synagogue in Cairo, Egypt, which date from about 400 A.D. Slide 24. The Ben Ashur manuscripts, five or six generations of this family, their job was scribes. What they did was they made uh, copies of the Old Testament using this specific Hebrew text. It's called the Masoretic, M-A-S-O-R-E-T-I-C. 
and that was from 700 to 950 A.D. The following are examples of that text that you can see here. Also, there's the Aleppo Codex. It contains the complete Old Testament and is dated around 950 A.D. Unfortunately, over one quarter of this codex was destroyed in anti-Jewish riots in 1947. There's the Codex Leningradus, the complete Old Testament in Hebrew, copied by the last member of the Ben Asher family in A.D. 1008. Now that's a list of the Old Testament, and that is still existence today, written in Hebrew. Slide 25. We also have the Aramaic, Aramaic Targumus, from about 400 B.C., that's written in Aramaic. Then we have the Greek translations of the Septuagint, written about 250 B.C. Slide 27, then there's the Chester Beatty Papyri, which contains nine Old Testament books in the Greek Septuagint and dates between 100 and 400 A.D. Then there's the Codex Veneterius and the Codex uh, starts with an H. <laughs> Each contain almost the entire Old Testament of the Greek Septuagint, and they both date around 350 A.D., there is no other book or ancient writing known to man that has as many original manuscripts still in existence as God's holy word. I mean, it doesn't even come close. There's other non-biblical archaeological evidence as well, slide 28. There's the Code of Hammuri, dated 1750 B.C., discovered at Susa, showing there was a common Semitic law of retribution clearly reflected in the Pentateuch of uh, Exodus 21, 23 through 25. The Nuzi tablets, um, 20,000 cuneiform clay tablets discovered uh, east of the Tigris River. They talk about customs and practices that are congruent, congruent to those found in Genesis. So we have things that aren't even of the Bible that speaks about the same practices that's going on that we have in the Bible in the book of Genesis. Then we have this Meripath steel. This is the earliest reference to Israel in non-biblical sources and demonstrates that as of 1230 B.C., the Hebrews were already living in the promised land. Biblical cities attested archaeologically are, in addition to Jericho, places like Hannah, Hazra, Dan, Midigo, Shechem, Samaria, Shiloh, Gezer, Gibbon, Beth Shem, Beth Shan, Bathsheba, and many, many other sites that you can go to Israel today. And the same ones that are listed in the Word of God, they can show you where those are and show you the archaeological evidence. Such geographical markers are extremely significant in demonstrating the fact, not fantasy, is intent in the Old Testament historical narratives. Otherwise, the, spe the specificity regarding these urban sites would have been replaced by once upon a time. But it never says that in the world of God. Such precise urban evidence measures when compared with the geographical sites claimed in the holy books. There are also numerous accounts of historical kings and their accomplishments that are listed on carvings that are also listed in the Bible. The same laws we read, the same psalms we pray and listen to, the same ones the Israelites were singing and praying and listening to in 200 B.C. R.C. Sproul says it this way. 
decisive assurance that Scripture is from God and consists entirely of his wisdom, his truth comes from Jesus Christ and his apostles who taught in his name. Jesus viewed what we call the Old Testament as his heavenly Father's written instruction, which he no less than others must obey and fulfill. This can be seen in the multiplicity of passages in which Jesus and the apostles quote Old Testament passages in which we know as the New Testament. So the evidence is overwhelming. We can be assured by the evidence that has been found. We can be assured by Jesus' testimony about the Word of God. And we can be assured by the way we have seen its power in our lives. And we can know that the things that they found, okay, have a 99.5% repeatability in every archaeological find that they found. Amen? There's nothing more than supernatural over 2,000 years. But if we treat our instruction manual of the Bible like a tool that's never taken out of the box and used, we're no better than man who does not have a tool at all. We treat the Bible like a letter from a friend or a mentor who's willing to share their wisdom, but we choose not to take the letter out of the envelope, we might as well not have it. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. An Oklahoma pastor quoted saying, Know the master of the book. Master the book. And let the book master you. Amen. Father, we thank you for today's word, Lord. We pray that we do not just go through the motions of spending time, but each day we come to see you, to speak with you, to get to know you, Lord. And these words that have been proven true and accurate and repeatable for over 2,000 years, Lord, will continue to make a difference in our lives and the lives of those who will come after us. Father, because the Word of God has the power to break down strongholds, Lord. It has the power to change lives, raise the dead, cast out demons. Father, it has the power to bring joy inexpressible. And Lord, it has the power of salvation, the gift of eternity, and the gift of your love. In Jesus Christ's name, the church said, Amen. Amen.